Now light the field for the big game tonight. Mark Twain to Thomas Jefferson. Welcome to episode 561 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I am Ben Lindbergh of Grantland.com, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Yo, how are you? Okay. Good. I probably should have said good afternoon, because most of you will not be listening in the morning. We are recording in the morning in our time zones uh, after game one of the World Series. And it was not not the most entertaining World Series game. It was probably... The least entertaining <laughs> World Series game? Well, by default, but it was probably one of the least entertaining games, period, this postseason in, in a month when we've been spoiled by lots of one-run games and nail-biters and extra inning games. This one was decided fairly early or seemed to be decided fairly early and was as it turned out uh so i was at the game and wrote about that a little bit and you watched the game and wrote about that a little bit and we talked about some similar points um i guess the takeaway other other than james shields being bad and madison bumgarner being great again wait i have a business ah okay just a few things. Mm-hmm. The uh, the Bruce Bochy American League double switch has been found. <laughs> yeah. Uh, by Groog, legendary McCovey chronicler, uh, Groog, uh, who um, sent me a box score, and it's uh, it's interesting because it it is kind of a double switch. Um, he replaced. Okay, so in the eighth, he brought in a new pitcher. He was leading by three, and. He replaced the first baseman, who was uh, John Bowker, with Rich Aurelia, uh, who was the DH, who had been the DH. So Aurelia was batting seventh, uh, sixth, and Bowker had been batting eighth. So Bowker makes the last out of the inning. And so they move Aurelia from DH to first base, which then burns the DH. And so now they don't have a DH. Mm-hmm. And so the pitcher spot. Uh, so now the DH spot becomes the pitcher. So Brian Wilson, I think, is now batting, or maybe Tyler Walker is now batting eighth. And so in the sense that they did replace the last man who made an out with a pitcher so that he wouldn't have to bat a long time around, uh, that was a double switch. But the Giants were up 4-1. It was the bottom of the eighth. There was practically no way that that spot would bat again in a significant way. And so I can't decide whether this was the silliest move ever, which is what it was portrayed as at the time, and whether we should still laugh at Bruce Bochy in retrospect, even though uh, now we all love him, because it's so silly and so unnecessary. And, <laughs> and, and as anybody would, would rightly acknowledge, Rich Aurelia in 2008 was like, you know, it, it, it's not like you were putting a gold glove there. Yes, he had played shortstop earlier in his career, but he was an old man. Um, and so it's not, you know, it was a very, very minimal, probably, upgrade at first. The other thing is that Aurelia was 
Well, no, I guess it wouldn't matter. Let's see. Yeah, anyway, forget the last whatever thing I said. Uh, so, or if I think that it's brilliant because he found a way to make a double switch that actually did make sense, even in an AL park. Because uh, I think it might, I think maybe it did make sense. I think it makes sense. Yeah, I guess. It... Upgrade your defense for the last two innings, mm-hmm. down by three, uh, and or up by three, and almost certainly never come to regret burning your DH. Why not? Probably should be done more. Uh, Although yeah. I, I guess it's not that often that a your DH is qualified to be a defensive replacement, but it's mm-hmm. not that rare. I mean, teams use everybody at DH these days, mm-hmm. so it's common enough. I mean, if uh, you know, if you were getting Hosmer a day off from the field, for instance, and Butler was playing at first, you could do this and you could burn your DH, and it probably would be okay if you timed it right. So I'm I'm actually going to say Trailblazer. I'm going to say <laughs> that this is a move that has potential. He won the game. Well, he won the game, but he was going to win the game. And yet, it didn't catch on, this tactic. Uh, it might if he did it now. He didn't have quite the pull in, in that's true. baseball consciousness. All right, he, so that's yeah, one thing. He should do it tonight, maybe, on the big stage. He should. Uh, well, but Morse is his DH. Mm. So I think that would be Ma. Yes, probably. Uh, all right, the, uh, I have an update on the commercial about the... <laughs> Uh, three out of ten. Uh, batting 300 gets a hit one out of three times. You uh-huh. long-time listeners will mm-hmm. remember this. Uh, short-time listeners, too, will remember this. Uh, I heard the I heard the sequel to it, and the the uh, lawyer dad does indeed say, yes, I, I got it wrong. It's not, it's not one and three. It's three and ten. But he says it in the snidest, most passive-aggressive way possible that I come out of it hating him more. But what I really hate about him is that he then pl- has his daughter say, after he says, well, d- you don't actually get a hit every three times, you get a hit three out of ten times. And his poor daughter has to say, what's that mean? I'm confused. Which <laughs> is just the most girls can't do math uh-huh. ever. And I know that it, if he had a son, he would have had his son do it. I get it. But, you know, I, I, I care about the messages we send to our girls. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm pretty sure that she can understand the numbers 3 and 10 and what it means to get a hit 3 out of 10 times. I don't appreciate what he did to her. It's a pretty despicable commercial. We will not be playing it because I don't want his name to be repeated. Uh, And lastly, this is not my least favorite stat ever, but it is a pretty disingenuous stat. You, Everybody has heard this a lot lately. Uh, The team that has won the first game in the World Series has won 11 of the past 10 or, you know, 22 uh, of the past 26 or 15 of the past 17. Exactly. There's no reason to limit it to the last 17. There's mm-hmm. just no reason. There is nothing that changed 17 years ago unless I can think of something. Can you think of anything that changed at some point recently that would have changed the the ratios? Because otherwise, it is explicitly cherry-picking for no reason. It is incredibly disingenuous. We have 100 years of seven-game series, basically. Uh, and unless you can tell me why 1940 numbers worked differently than 2010 numbers work, I just don't know why I wouldn't go with the sample of 100 instead of your idiot sample of 12. Now, can you think of anything that changed? It's conceivable something has changed. Is there anything that has changed? Is the fact that uh, they don't go one 
four seven with their starters anymore, maybe, but probably not. But maybe something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the back players got less gritty. They got less gritty. They quit gritting back. Right. Once they go down, they, they can no down. longer. They're yeah. they're yeah. done. They want to just get their off season started. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I I I have it on. I have it on good authority that Greg Holland left in the fourth inning yesterday <laughs> and is not coming back. Uh-huh. Um, I, yeah, go I, ahead. I don't know. Uh, I'm trying to, I mean, it, it does go, I mean, I don't know. I've seen it in various formulations. I've seen 22 out of 26 was the largest sample I saw, which is fairly large. But I don't, I don't know what, what could have changed other than, yeah, the, I don't know, the less ability to bring back your ace or something or uh on short rest or or pitchers not pitching as well on short rest because they're not conditioned to do it maybe the way they once were um i i don't i don't know something about bullpen usage i mean i guess that that would benefit both teams so i i don't know yeah i mean it is true that the game is different in ways both subtle and less subtle. So if if there is a compelling reason to think that I should care I mean, about the last twelve years more, has than, the the format changed? I mean, the the two three two. That's been my whole life, certainly. Yeah. Hmm. Um, I mean, I guess I don't know. They're they played these guys have all played an extra series or two, and so maybe there's right. a fatigue element to it. Hmm. Um. I mean, I, I could be swayed. My suspicion, though, is that people who are citing this don't have that strong, cohesive argument in mind. I've also seen the, for the people who, that want to show how the series is still wide open, I've seen the, uh, well, eight out of the past 11 teams that won game one at home won the series, but only four out of nine that won it on the road won the series. Mm-hmm. Meaningless, utter, you know, utter, utter meaningless means nothing i mean the, the very like just logically it makes no sense so if because obviously a team that well at the end of the first game you have three home and three road no matter whether you're at home or whether you're on the road so there's if if there is no logical reason why those two numbers should be different mm-hmm. you have to show me why they should be different i think mm-hmm. right. anyway yeah okay all right. So the game itself, we I think we both sort of focused on the fact that the Royals seemed weaker when they don't have a lead, which it, which seems like an obvious thing to say that every team probably seems weaker when it's losing. But the Royals were not able to deploy all of the weapons that we have talked about in the postseason. The the extremely high percentage of innings that were devoted to Herrera, Davis, and Holland in the ALCS. And before that, in retrospect, I mean, it's, it's, it's obvious that that was in part, I mean, yes, it was, it was Ned Yost learning to manage differently in the postseason, but it was also the fact that the Royals were almost always winning in all of the previous rounds. And so they were in a position to use those guys in all those games. And, Yost being aggressive with Dyson and putting him in when the team had a lead or was tied late was also something they don't do when losing. Dyson sat on the bench and he did his celebration dance from the wildcard game in the pregame introductions, but was was not seen again after that. And there was no 
need for Terrence Gore. You didn't need to pinch hit with with or pinch run with Terrence Gore when you were behind by seven, six runs. So all of those weapons, all of those things that we've talked about, maybe the Royals being a better postseason team than world than regular season team because they can go heavily, they can leverage all of these assets were not assets when they're behind and, and when they're behind by that many runs, the goal is to come back and to get guys on base and to hit home runs, and those are not the things that they are good at. Of course, no one is really very good at those things against Madison Bumgarner, who was great again, but you, in your recap, looked at whether that perception was true, was backed up by stats from this season, whether the Royals really are a weaker team when they are behind, or when if they are a stronger team when they are ahead. What did you find? Yeah, and of course, this sort of thing is always going to be prone to uh, data limitations, but um, this year when they were behind, Baseball References Play Index has this little feature where you can see how often they uh, a team won if they were ahead in the first versus how often they won if they were behind in the first, at the end of the first. Uh, and you can do that for every inning, and you can look at it league-wide. And they were, you know, slightly better than average. If they were trailing, they were like, uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna look at it uh, so that I can make sure that I'm not saying things that are incorrect. Um, but they were, you know, like for instance, at the end of the, um, you know, at the end of the seven, uh, if they were trailing, uh, they had, they won like, uh, you know. Basically, 16 more games out of a thousand than the average team that finished the seventh inning trailing. So they came back slightly more often than an average team, but you know, 16 out of a thousand, it's it's pretty small when you compare it to uh, to if they were winning. In which case, uh, if they were winning at the end of the seventh, they won 69 more games out of a thousand than the average team, and and it's pretty consistent. Uh, there's a there's a little bit of a of a data weirdness around like the third and fourth inning because they're uh, starting. They're, basically, the third and fourth innings were the worst of theirs by far for their pitching, um, which kind of makes sense. They had, uh, you know, a, a, the kind of starting rotation that wasn't like that distinguished. And you had guys like Guthrie and Vargas who, uh, you know, maybe are prone to get hit a little bit. Um, so in the third and the fourth, it gets a, a little funky. But basically, if they get out to a lead at any point in the game from that point on, they're significantly more likely than the average team with a lead to win that game. Um, and uh, it's it's less true when they're when they're trailing. Um, so uh, I mean, you know, the, who knows if that's necessarily? Uh, I mean, it's only one season's worth of data. We only have one season with this team, mm-hmm. um, but it fits the hypothesis. And, you know, I think that the hypothesis, um, you know, makes a lot of sense on its face just because we sometimes think, I, I think it's fair to say that the, that the default expectation for players, the default is to assume that barring really good, really convincing information, uh, we should assume that they will perform more or less the same regardless of, of context. So, whether it's a clutch situation or not, you know, not everybody's going to be the same, but, but given the limited information we have and our limited understanding of it, the default should be to assume that, you know, Tim Collins is going to pitch just as well in a high leverage situation as a low leverage situation. Or, 
that um, you know uh, Wade Davis is going to pitch just as well uh, in in June as he will in July, and that um, James Shields or I don't know, I'll pick a James Shields a starter, but uh, that you know Eric Hosmer will hit just as well when his team is ahead as when it's behind. And so this idea that they would be a particularly good team when they're ahead or behind, um, if you make it seem like a, a character thing or that they just aren't, re- they, 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 just, they, they can't come back or that they, they never let another team, you know, burrow into their advantage and that they're just so tough when they're ahead or, or anything like that, it's probably going to be silly and nonsense. But there's a, there is a real difference, a very real difference in the personnel that they use in these situations. They are two separate teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, operating on two different tracks, and one of the tracks is a very good team, and the other team is a it's an okay team, it's a less good team. Um, but the people themselves are actually literally different. And the other thing is just that uh, when you have a, a game, the the as the game proceeds and it gets close to the end stages, and one team has a lead, um, uh, volatility is going to favor the team that is um, trailing because the team that's trailing basically needs needs something to shake up the situation in a big way. Otherwise, you know, if, if it's a 6-4 to four game, no matter what two teams are playing, the odds are that the 6-4 to four team, that the team with 6 is, is going to win because the odds are that, you know, in baseball, the, the, the uh, most persistent outcome of an inning is no runs score. And so if the state just stays as it is, the team that's ahead is is going to win. And so if you're trailing, you really want volatility. And if you're leading, you really don't want volatility. And this is a team that is low scoring. They don't score a lot of runs. They don't allow a lot of runs. And so the lack of volatility uh, really plays up when they're ahead and really plays down when they're behind you. As I think most people probably felt when they were down, you know, 5 nothing in the fourth inning, it was like you looked at the lineup and you thought well how can i mean where is the three run inning in this lineup right mm-hmm. so and of course they did i mean they game one uh, the wild card game showed mm-hmm. that that they can do it and not only can they do it but they can do it playing something like royals baseball stealing third down by four and doing all sorts of crazy things uh but you know this is not uh this is not the six run inning lineup basically yeah and the speed aspect was also sort of negated in that they just couldn't get anyone on base. So there was no way to steal. I mean, once you get down by that many runs against Bumgarner, it's not going to go well for any team most of the time. Um, But, but yeah, the, the speed didn't help a lot. The defense, the inability to draw walks doesn't help. Uh huh. And the defense wasn't great. There was, uh, Noriaoki taking a a weird and humorous route to yeah, a ball Kane, that in Kane, this in Kane, this case did not work out well. Kane catches that right. Uh, if he's in right, yeah, I would think so. And yeah. if not, catches it at least stops it at, at a single instead of playing it into a, a two run triple or whatever it was. And and it was the Giants making good defensive plays. Gregor Blanco making a really great catch on Eric Hosmer with uh, I guess Kane on first in the first inning to end that inning that was kind of the catch that people have become accustomed to seeing from Kane over the last few weeks so the Giants were good and the Giants are good defensively Ned Yost after the game said that defensively he thinks these teams are evenly matched and it's probably not as big a gap uh, as 
as it seemed to be in the last couple weeks, at least looking at the flashy Royals catches and their ultimate outfield and everything. So uh, the by defensive efficiency, that's were better than the Royals this year. And defensive efficiency just means that they turn more balls that were hit into the field into outs. A higher percentage of those balls became outs than when they were hit into the Royals. And uh, you were wondering about that. Did you ever find a, a, a compelling reason for why the Royals, who who we know have a good defense, their players all rate individually excellently, uh, and by other metrics they are much higher. Why don't they? Why do they simply not turn that many balls into outs? Do you know? I think it's just the ballpark mostly, and AT and T Park is is also large, but Kaufman has the biggest outfield in baseball. Uh, and if you look at the splits the royals home road babbit splits they have the largest in baseball um so when they are on the road i think they had the second lowest road babbit of any team and their road babbit would have been tied for the best full season babbit if they had had the same babbit at home on on, on the road and i think that's a i don't know if the gap is always as big as it was I think it was something like 35 points this year, but that is a pretty consistent thing from year to year uh, because Kaufman is is big and takes away homers, but but helps you hit all other kinds of hits. So I think that's part of it. If you if you look at just the the late inning ultimate outfield, the the numbers suddenly change, and suddenly the Royals with that alignment have one of the best bats in baseball. Of course, that is. Also a point in the game when Herrera, Davis, and Holland are often pitching and not allowing a ton of weak or a, a lot of strong contact, probably. So that is also a factor. And we should be, just be very clear that the Royals did not lose this game because Tim Collins pitched. I mean, they they lost because the Giants had a, a slightly better pitcher who pitched extremely well, uh, and the Royals had a slightly worse pitcher who pitched extremely poorly. And that's the game. That's 99% of the win probability is in those two guys. We're talking about details that were interesting to us, but not that really swayed the game. The only time that you could really say that the game uh, pivoted, uh, you know, besides just Shields getting shelled, like other than Shields getting shelled, the only time that the game really pivoted was in that, uh, was it the third or the fourth? The third inning rally, I think. Yeah, Yeah, the bottom of the third. When they put two on, they were down by three. They put two in scoring position with nobody out. And Bumgarner strikes out Escobar, strikes out Aoki, walks Kane, and then gets Osmer to ground out. And they get nothing. And then, like, four minutes later, the Giants had another two runs. Uh, but even without that, um, you know, that was that was really the situation where uh, any, any, any article that you read today, including ours, that presupposes that the Royals couldn't have won this game for any reason, can just go to that moment. And, of course, Eric Hosmer could have very easily doubled there. Um, and it's a totally different game. Or Norioki could have singled instead of striking out. And it's a very different game, and you know maybe the Royals win. So, clearly, as bad as the Royals looked, uh, there was nothing definitive about it, just as there's never anything definitive about one game, no matter how lopsided. Mm-hmm. You made a, a Jeff Lynn joke in your article that I did not appreciate. <laughs> 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 you compared compared the Royals' run before this game to uh, what the 2007 Rockies and to Jeff Lynn when he's or, or no, looking at no. looking at this run is like looking at Jeff Lynn when he's surrounded by Wilburys. 
I did say that. And not the 2007 Rockies. The, uh, the I was thinking more like the late 90s Rockies, uh-huh. where they would have, where they would, in my recollection, they would win like 72% of their games at home and like 35% of their games on the road. Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah. Awful, awful analogy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, what else? Uh, there was Danny Duffy reappearing and pitching. But not Lincecum. Were you totally interested interest, interested in the fact that they went to that he that Bochi used his his one mop up bullet? I guess he had two. He, he could have gone. Well, he had it. He had a number. He could have pulled. I thought. I mean, you know, he definitely could have pulled Bumgarner after the fifth. Felt mm-hmm. very confident in his team's chances of winning and done whatever he needed to do uh, as maintenance from that point on, uh, especially considering that Bumgarner's going to be pushing, you know, 45 or 50 innings by the time this is all done uh, in the postseason. But um, using the ninth inning for his mop-up inning, he went with Strickland in an attempt to get Strickland back on track and to get Strickland confidence again and to get Strickland to find his slider. And that, in that's uh, not a bad goal because... He would like Strickland to be a right-handed, high-leverage weapon, as he was able to use him for in a couple games in the division series. And right now, he couldn't do that. And so now, uh, now I think he thinks he can. That Strickland looked really good, faced the heart of the order, had the slider really popping. And so I'm sure he feels like that was an inning very productively used. And I'm sure that Tim Linscombe thinks it was an inning very unproductively used. <laughs> Tim Linscombe <laughs> didn't even show up for the pregame introductions, right? He didn't even come out on the line someone asked Bochi about that before yeah. or after the game and Bochi said he hadn't noticed but he is he has truly disappeared he, yeah I mean he was very visible though mm-hmm. in the in the bullpen uh-huh. looking looking grumpy uh-huh. uh so I wonder uh I wonder what that means I I guess it doesn't matter I don't want look I don't think that Tim Linscombe should be pitching in any situation and it has nothing to do with his being rusty he's not He's not nearly um, the Giants' best option in short relief in any sort of leverage situation, and he's not nearly their best option in long relief in any sort of multi-inning situation. As long as they have Yusmero Petit and that they haven't used Petit in the previous two days, there's no real reason to be carrying Linticum. I guess you carry him as like super, super-duper extra insurance, mm-hmm. uh, but I mean, I'd rather see, I guess I'd rather see Gary Brown on the roster than, than him. But, uh, so this is like the least important issue in this entire series. But it is sort of surprising that given, um, given, you know, that Mike Matheny is going to lose his job for using Michael Waka without getting him a mop-up inning first, uh, that, that Bochi didn't at least throw Linscombe out there for one inning and see what he's got and at least keep his arm somewhat familiar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and... And so the only other question, I guess, there was a lot of in-game advocating going on for Yost pulling Duffy after he had looked so good and keeping him in line for a Game 5 start. Now, there's no no way, and I don't think anyone thought there was a way, that Shields wouldn't pitch that game in what would be his last start in a Royals uniform, most likely, um, unless he is he is actually hurt. Uh, even if he is hurt, there is a possibility that he would start that game. Yost said after the game that Shields would start that game. Do you, if you were managing this team, would you do things any differently? Would you even consider 
going from Shields given how lousy he looked, or would you just start him because he's Shields and he's your team leader and he's your best pitcher during the regular season and be ready to hook him early if he looks as off as he did? Uh, first of all, I think uh, to answer the question, I would, I would start Shields, but I think that in defending the decision to start Shields, you used nothing but straw men that I disagree with. Like, (laughs) I I don't think he was their best starter during the regular season. Mm -hmm. I don't care that he is their leader. I would start him because he's better than Guthrie and better than Vargas. And I don't have any particular fear of using James Shields in a big game situation. I did think that it was uh, maybe the most enjoyable, at the poor guy's expense, but maybe the most enjoyable part of the postseason so far has being uh, has been seeing how incredibly quickly we can change our narrative about a player. Like yesterday, literally yesterday, James Shields was seen as not just a, a typical pitcher, but an exceptional pitcher with extraordinary abilities to pitch in big games. Uh, columns were being written about how he is the big game pitcher. And just, just like an hour after that, like, <laughs> like an hour and 20 minutes after that, he is, it, the, the narrative is not just that he is now a typical pitcher, but that he is so bad in big game situations that he can't pitch in the postseason again. And should the Royals replace him and, um, his nickname has become, uh, you know, mocked and it's, it's incredible. I mean, he's, I don't know. He's, he, he never probably deserved, uh, a, a particularly, uh, uh, high, uh, reputation for this. And he probably, I don't know. I mean, the, I, my guess is that the nickname was never, you know, in his mind was never <laughs> intended to be anything like extraordinary. We all have weird nicknames. Like for instance, when I was a kid, Ben, mm-hmm. my, my nickname was Slam and Sammy. <laughs> really? Did I slam? Not really. <laughs> one, one of the least slammy players. They didn't. The... They didn't call you Bam Bam. Did, did that's uh, that's a good callback. <laughs> uh, I I in fact uh, I never did slam. I never did hit a slam. Never slammed in my entire life. Uh, and and it would have been a shame if like if I had been nicknamed Slam and Sammy and for the first six years everybody accepted it and treated it as though it were. Um, uh, uh, prophetic, and then one day woke up and went, "Hey, he's not slamming. I hate that guy. <laughs> it's just a nickname, you guys. It's nothing. It doesn't mean anything." <laughs> and I bet in James Shields' mind, it meant next to nothing. I'm sure that in his mind, it was what I mean. Didn't he name himself? Isn't that the story in the miners? Coffee's ready. Hmm. Uh, isn't it the story that in the miners he named himself? I might be totally botching this. I always thought that it was that he named himself, and it was like. Uh, uh, it's sort of just a, a one-off thing, and, you know, it, it, it's the minors, so there are no big games. I think it was, I thought it was something that came from his high school teammates. They called him that. I, uh, I don't know, maybe it's hard to establish the origin story of something like that. Maybe you get it a few different times. Uh, I don't think he's ever particularly embraced the nickname. Um, and you're right, I don't know that he would have that nickname if his name didn't happen to rhyme with game uh he he has pitched well in some big games but he hasn't really stood out in that respect uh but it yeah anyway your question was should he start uh and i i get i, I mean you wouldn't the, consider duffy yeah well no the thing is that it's not about him or duffy it's about him or guthrie right i mean 
you could start Duffy over Guthrie if you wanted to. If you're interested in starting Duffy, that's easy. Mm-hmm. I guess it's slightly harder now because let's see, two space three. I mean, he'd have to do it on three days rest after yeah. after coming back. But so I guess now it's slightly harder. Maybe maybe that rules it out. But I mean, he only threw three innings, uh, three plus innings, uh, and had. I would say he had come into that game rested. Uh, mm-hmm. So anyway, the point is that they didn't. I mean, they even okay. Even if it is now Duffy versus Shields, even if that has to be the decision because of the rest. We already have established a certain truth, a certain kind of physical property of this universe that we're talking about, and that physical property is that uh, in the Royals' mind, Guthrie is better than Duffy. So if you're saying that Duffy should start over Shields, then you would also have to concede by the Royals' logic that Guthrie should start over Shields. And so I'm perfectly contentious to say that Shields should start over Guthrie. Uh, And, of course, uh, uh, you know, Shields... Uh, Guthrie's going to pitch, so I'm not literally saying he should start over Guthrie. They're both going to start, but um, I I wouldn't I wouldn't bump Shields from it. Now I will say that I haven't. I, he looked terrible yesterday. I haven't really looked at why he looked terrible. I looked a little bit at his previous starts, which weren't that great. He was you know getting hit hard and fairly hard and getting hit hard in the air, which is not really. Um, and you know, he was getting hit hard in the air on, a, on his cutter, which is not really a pitch that gets hit hard in the air a lot. And so maybe there is something there. Maybe, maybe, maybe he's, maybe it's mechanical. Maybe he's exhausted. Maybe there are reasons to think that he is not as good as the pitcher that we've come to know and expect. But, um, it ha- if I, if I found a reason not to start him, it would have nothing to do with the big gamedness of it. Mm-hmm. And, and frankly, I think that at this point in the season, you go with the guy anyway. If he's, you know, if he's gassed and he's barely getting, you know, by on fumes, well, you know, you don't have much you can do. It's it's October. You throw him out there and you hope it works. I mean, I saw the Giants go through this in 2012 where uh, their entire rotation seemed to be uh, gassed or broken or uh, irredeemable at certain points in the last couple weeks and in October, and they just kept throwing him out there. And uh, they would get bombed sometimes. I mean, you you remember that team? They were down two games nothing against Cincinnati. They were down three to one against St. Louis. That wasn't because they were unlucky. It was because their starters were getting bombed, and that had happened to a few of them in September too. And but then when you know they threw them out there, and lo and behold, Ryan Vogelsong comes up with an, an a, a spectacular start, and Barry Zito comes up with a great start, and Madison Bumgarner comes up. You just sort of have to hold your breath. I mean, you know, it's not going to go perfectly, and you're not going to win all the World Series that you get to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So that's that. Uh, we will watch Game Two tonight. And you and I were chatting about this last night, but the experience of watching a World Series game in person is not quite all it's cracked up to be. I mean, it's cool to be at a World Series. It's cool to be in Kansas City, which I have never been before, because the city kind of redecorated for the World Series in a way that I'm not used to coming from New York, where a World Series happens or a Super Bowl happens, and you wouldn't ever know it from looking around. There are just too many too many people, too many teams, too many titles. That is not the case here. The entire city is sort of in World Series mode. But when you go to a World Series game, uh, the there's just so much more press than there is during the regular season that they have to stick most of the people who would not normally be covering the team 
in the auxiliary press box, which is often somewhere very far away. I know it, in Yankee Stadium, it's like way out in, in the outfield. In in Kauffman, it's by the left field foul pole, basically. At AT&T, it's a conference room that doesn't overlook the park. <laughs> really? You see, you watch it on TV. Right. Yeah, they, they kind of had that. in Even the people who were in the press box, many of them were set up at these tables with no view of the field whatsoever. So um, you're sitting in this place, or I was sitting in this place, an enclosed area so that you you kind of hear the crowd, but as if from a great distance, um, and you're you know craning your head to look over some other guy's head so that you can see part of home plate. <laughs> and it's still you know great to, to be there, but you kind of feel more connected to the game almost when you're sitting at home on your couch. And of course, then every every media opportunity is is a group press conference, which uh, not only are you getting the same quotes that everyone else is getting, but you don't even have to be there physically because they will put transcripts of those press conferences on the internet and print them out for you. Uh, so what you are don't... you telling me for, Ben? I've been making fun of you publicly <laughs> for the last week. <laughs> yeah, it's it's well, it's cool to cover a World Series. I've been to World Series, but I have not covered one. But yeah. the the actual process of doing so is uh, not quite what it would be during most other games, or even see? in some respects, what it would be from covering it from thousands of miles away. Did you see Andy? I did see Andy. See, uh, I, I envision Andy as being a celebrity at this thing. See? Um, I did not see him shaking a whole lot of hands or kissing babies or anything, but he did have a, a spot in the actual press box, so in that sense, he is a VIP. Yeah. All right, so we'll watch Game 2 again tonight. We will talk about it most likely tomorrow morning again. And uh, we welcome your emails. Maybe we will get to those on the off day after the off day. So please send them at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild if you want a place to discuss the games as they are going on or before or after. And please support our sponsor, baseballreference.com, by going to that site and subscribing to the play index using the coupon code BP to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription.